one of the reasons that we made it through was because people met us out there and cared for us. And like there, we had, you know, my mom was so worried about me being so far away, but we had like 10,000 moms out there and they would give you directions, but you got to be sure to call them when you get to the next town and good Lord, you're not leaving this house without a glass jar of jam. Um, so those, those folks really helped us actually along the way. Hey, hey everyone. Welcome back to the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. I'm your host, Shanti. And today, Out and Back podcast producer Mary, who you may remember from last week's episode, is going to join us for our chat with Bethany Hughes and Lauren Reed of Her Odyssey. Bethany and Lauren, or Fidget and Neon, as they're known in the outdoor world, give us a recap of their great adventure across the Americas. They started their journey more than five years ago at the tip of South America, and since then they've been heading north, hiking, biking, and paddling their way to North America. They're here in the States now, waiting for COVID to subside so they can resume their trip north, so we figured in the meantime this would be a great time to catch up with them. We're excited to hear some tips from them about how to travel through the wilderness in foreign countries and how to navigate respectfully through indigenous lands and cultures. Also, it can be a dangerous world out there, in some places at least. So we're also going to hear about how these two women have managed to keep themselves safe despite being on unfamiliar ground. Real quick before we begin, if you want to travel worldwide like Fitted and Neon are, you're going to want worldwide topo maps. And you're actually in luck if you're listening to this, because Gaia GPS happens to have topo maps for the entire globe. Maps like Canada Topo, Backroad Mapbooks Canada, topo maps for Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Japan. All of these maps are at your fingertips when you have a Gaia Premium membership. And again, as I said, you're in luck if you're listening to this, because right now, Gaia GPS is offering up to 50% off, 50 off on a premium membership for podcast listeners. All you need to do to bag this sweet deal is go to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast. Again, that's GaiaGPS.com, G-A-I-A-GPS.com slash podcast. All right, without any further ado, here we go with Her Odyssey. Introducing Fidget and Neon, everybody. So joining us is Bethany Hughes, a.k.a. Fidget, and Lauren Reed, a.k.a. Neon. Thanks so much for being on the show, ladies. Thank you. Our pleasure. The way I want to start, actually, is I want to see um, with you guys actually introducing each other and learning about your background. Fidget, I'd love for you to introduce Neon to us. And Neon, love if you could introduce Fidget to us. Well, Neon was one time referred to as a hiking OG She has now completed her triple crown, which means, well, she began with the Appalachian Trail and then she hiked the Pacific Crest Trail where we met and then she did the Continental Divide Trail. And in between, around and beside those trails, she picked up a couple bonus trails. Um, She's also been a wilderness therapy guide for years. She's a climber, a paddler, an introvert, and somewhere along the odyssey that we've been on together, she started dabbling with the idea of cheating on through hiking with bikepacking and has since become a pretty avid bikepacker. She loves puzzles and pastries and she hates fake banana flavoring. And real bananas. (laughs) 
<laughs> you don't you don't like real bananas? No. <laughs> Interesting. But banana bread now, see? Neon, tell us about f- fidget. Oh, man. So fidget grew up all over the place as a kid and then kind of settled into Colorado as an adult. And she just has this drive and this passion that is palpable. Um, I think at one point she said she could probably convince convince people to do just about anything, which is like a dangerous superpower to have. Um, but yeah, she's been all over the place. She really enjoys like winter weather, whereas I'm a warm weather person. She's a she's more of a cold weather person. Um, yeah, she's enjoys skiing and snowboarding and teaching is a really big passion of hers. Um, she's the one that came up with this, this idea and then has, has since been able to proliferate it across many, many different avenues. And so I think wherever her passions take her is where her drive goes. So again, how was it the two of you, uh, crossed paths and started hiking together? Cross paths. We crossed paths on the Pacific Crest Trail. We both hiked that in 2010 um, and met along the way. And we're traveling with different groups of people, but met up. And then we were able to migrate to that to becoming friends after after the trail. So you didn't hike a huge portion of the trail together. So we were in two separate uh, trail families who were hiking around each other. And I had a, it was my first through hike. So I was mostly um, just in awe of all of the people who were out there who had done trails before. And Neon was in this crew that was rolling deep with strong women. And I had this like, kind of stand back from them and behold them crush on like, lip service and princess and neon as they just like rolled through and would brazenly talk about things that I, as a missionary kid was like, can you say that out loud? Um, (laughs) So, but we crossed paths. Yeah. Several times along that trail. And then after that, because of neon living down in Moab and my living in Summit County, um, you know, when things, would get hot down there. Sometimes she would come up and visit me. And when I got tired of the snow, I'd go down there and we'd mountain bike together. And um, and then when she came through Colorado on the continental divide trail on her through hike, um, I got to crew for her and send out resupplies. And uh, I just really enjoyed trail magicking for the years that I did have a base and I got to do that for her there. So now the two of you have been on this adventure for what, about five years now? About is there is there a good way to just summarize your whole trip in general? I know we're catching you in the middle of your trip, or actually towards the last end of your trip here. Um, how do you summarize your trip? What is is the trip you're on now? So the trip that we're on now is called Her Odyssey, and our mission statement is a human-powered traverse of the Americas, connecting the stories of the land and its inhabitants. That's our mission statement. We recently revised it. Um, It's been really exciting to be active in this community as so much language is developing around it. So this concept of multimodal, human-powered travel, honestly, was not in 
uh, common dialect at the time when we started. So we started with the clunky term of like non-motorized means. I had really liked when I was first thinking of it in Spanish, they called something poder a sangre, like powered by blood was any like a word for human powered, but um, that's also kind of weird. Blood powered doesn't quite have the same ring as human powered. (laughs) Neon mentioned that this was your idea, Fidget. How did you come up with this? Um, I don't think I did. I, it, it came to me. Uh, I had finished through hiking the Pacific Crest Trail in 2010 and my family were, were like, all right, you've had your adventure. So now you come home, you get your job, you marry your high school boyfriend. Um, you go into graduate school, you get debt, you have children. So get going girly. And I came home and it was not the best. (laughs) My sister was getting married and my family confiscated my mountain bike from me because they said, well, you're in the wedding and we can't have you covered in bruises and you keep going out and like breaking your toes and getting covered in bruises. So they confiscated my bike, which was a big step against it. And then about two days after my sister got married, it was 102 degrees in Kansas city where I was living. And it's just like, I'm, I'm not happy, man. I have to wear high heels to H&R Block every day. I go to management meetings and I have nine levels of bosses above me. This And it's just too hot and I'm sweating and these shoes are terrible. And so I just put everything in my car and called the friend who lived in Colorado. And I was like, hey, I'm thinking of moving to Colorado. And she's like, awesome. I'm going to have a room available. When are you going to be here? And I was like, mm, six hours. She was like, oh, oh, um, So in the midst of that, there'd been this moment when I was sitting in traffic on my way back from the corporate district of Kansas City. And I pulled over and I was reading Chris McDougall's book, Born to Run at the time. And in that book, there's this sentence where he says, um, the Sierra Madre Sociedental Range connects the longest chain of mountains in the world. And it was just this aha moment when I think my first conscious thought in response to it was like, that's going to be exhausting. Um, but it was, it's those mountain chains connect the story, the narrative of my life up to that point, having been raised in the Andes and having guided in the Rockies. Um, so I just, it just, it spoke to me and I thought I'd answer and here I am. So then you have the first part it inspires you to go. So what inspires you to then reach out to neon and say, Hey, do you want to hike 12,000 miles? <laughs> um, I think, again, it's it's my belief system in these sort of things that um, when you're called to something, if you respond to that call to action and are willing to play your part, the next step is doing the hard work of putting the pieces in place and also trusting that if this is something that you are called to, those pieces will come to you. And so one of the things that I knew that I would need in order to pull this off, there's a couple of things that I was going to need to pull this off that were outside of my realm of power. And one of those was having a travel companion. So I just was like, all right, I'm, I need that person and I don't know who they're going to be, um, but I'm going to trust that they're going to show up. And uh, I did not think that it was going to be neon. <laughs> And I don't know that Neon thought it was going to be Neon. Do you want to tell that part, Neon? So when I was living in Utah, working wilderness therapy, 
And I would go to visit Fidget up in Summit County in Colorado. And then I um, I would also visit my sister when she lived outside of Boulder. And so it'd be kind of like this pathway that I would travel between between Colorado and um, Utah. And every time I would come to visit Fidget, she'd be talking about this journey and this trip that she wanted to do in South America. And um, South America has been pretty high on my list. Like I don't really travel internationally a ton. I guess I can't say that anymore. But um, (laughs) before 2015, I didn't really travel internationally a ton. I had been to Europe and that was about it. Um, and then Fidget kept talking about this trip and this backpacking, like backpacking, hiking across the Americas trip. And so I would, every time she would talk about it, there'd be certain people that she'd mentioned that might be involved, but it was like a lot of stuff was up in the air. And, um, so I would ask questions every time I was there just to kind of get more information because I like to be informed before I make a decision usually. (laughs) Um, and I found out a couple years into this trip that when I would ask these questions, Fidget would just like make up an answer. I made educated guesses. Okay, what's an example of that? What is one of these questions, educated guesses? I do not know. She would know. I do. She <laughs> asked me what was the highest elevation that we would be at. And I had no idea. Well, so my the way my brain works is that it kind of moves like like when you go into Google Earth and it zooms in on different areas, my brain zoomed in on the area that when I'd been looking at maps seemed like it was the highest elevation, which was around uh, Bolivia and Peru, which was on average about 12,000 feet in elevation. So I guesstimated that the highest elevation we would be at would probably be in the passes there at around 17,000 feet. And as it turns out, the highest pass we went through was 16,998 feet. So so you were correct. Off by two feet. How could you? <laughs> That's amazing. So are you guys different in, in nature, like your personalities? Yes. Describe the other to us. <laughs> um, I guess the easiest way to describe it is there is a Venn diagram that we use at work. Um, that is like one circle is logic. And one circle is emotion. And then in between, like the the connecting parts of the circle is where your like wise mind is supposed to be. Um, It's like a balance of logic and emotional. And like I usually lean towards the logic side and fidget is usually leaning towards the emotion side. Uh, And we've talked about it quite a bit because it's like we pull each other kind of more towards the center. One of the ways that we put it is that I get us out of town, usually with just my enthusiasm to get going. And then Neon gets us back into the next town because she's like, now we're moving in this direction. We don't need to go in seven different directions. Let's just keep going this way. And then I start to run out of cheese and then I follow her. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned the hike across Americas. I, I think that's a hard concept for people to really visualize. Can you just kind of describe generally the geography that you started from and where you're headed. So we started in the mountains of Tierra del Fuego, which is at the southern end. Um, We walked across Patagonia, northbound, and came into, we were following the Andes range the whole time, but we were kind of like meandering between Argentina and Chile. So basically right along the border, but it was very mountainous. 
and there were some pretty high elevations. And then in Santiago, we kind of dropped, we, we went across the, the Andes from Santiago to Mendoza area. And um, then we're in the desert in Northern Argentina and walking along dirt roads because we were uncertain about water. Um, so we wanted to be able to be able to like get into a town if we needed to for water purposes, because all the washes up there, it actually looks a lot like Southern Utah, um, in Northern Argentina. And so it was a lot of, um, washes and sandstone and, um, desert because the Atacama desert goes through that area and it's the driest desert in the world. The Puna, they call it. From Northern Argentina, we went and gained elevation, but we're still in like the high desert, which they call what the Altiplano Mm -hmm. um, of Bolivia. And then from Bolivia North, it was a lot of still dry, a lot of um, salt flats and dry deserty stuff. But then we were also up at 4,000 meters, um, which is about what, 12, 13,000 feet. And we stayed up at 4,000 meters from northern Argentina to northern Peru. Um, and once we were in Peru again, or back in Peru, we, we went from the desert areas to um, more mountainous ranges again. And so in Peru, they have these, these giant mountains um, that you've probably seen in photos around um, Cusco and the Cordillera, the different Cordillera ranges, um, the Cordillera Waiwash, the Cordillera Blanco. That's a pretty popular one. And then we went up into Ecuador, which was still pretty high, but it was like more mountains and valleys and greenery. And um, then we went up through Colombia and dropped down again as we came to the, the Caribbean into the greenery and the monkeys and the um, fun noises that you're not sure what, what it is. <laughs> wow. So going through all, all of these areas, you're going through the driest desert in the world. You're going up into these mountains in, uh, in Peru. Were you close to Machu Picchu in that mountain range? Yes. Yeah. We hiked, we actually hiked, we got to hike the length of the sacred Valley, which was really neat because just outside of the edge of it, um, we were going through pueblos where people were just baffled that we were there and then really honored because they're like, well, everybody just goes to Machu Picchu. Nobody ever comes to see us. Um, and they, there's actually really cool ruins there. And then we just started walking into the parks and um, they would be concerned. They're like, well, where's your tour bus? And we're like, no, we don't have a tour bus. And then we're just, it's just fascinating because there's those, those famous sites, you know, the, the salt pans and the, and the um, ruins, but in between there's like cornfields and you can see the different layers of growth of the cornfields and the grandmothers out collecting and the children sitting in the shade and, and just like watching like the farming lifestyle exist alongside such a um, heaving, thriving tourism industry. It was a really cool contrast how did you guys go about planning for that? How did you go about planning? Like, how are we going to go from the Tierra del Fuego all the way up into Colombia through these incredible deserts and mountain ranges? 
So that would be my wheelhouse. And that was circling back to one of the things that I said earlier, you know, the calling comes and then a big piece of it is doing the hard work to, to show that you're going to be willing to do the hard work of sticking with the journey like this. So, so for example, it came up and then I was like, all right, well, if you're going to go do this thing, you need to plan it. So I sat down and I began working with Google Earth Pro and using satellite imagery. I also began using um, probably one of my kind of innate skill sets of, of gathering really cool people. And I began hunting down anyone who had done anything like this. I found George Megan. I found Greg Trinish. I found Joey Shanka. And I started contacting them and I was reading their books. I was reading their blogs. I was highlighting things at the same time as each day after work, I would go home, sit down at my computer and spend at least two hours just slowly scrolling through these far off foreign lands and marking. I definitely didn't know what I was doing at first. So I was spending too much time getting too detail oriented when what would have been most helpful had been if I had just plotted towns first, like because places where there's resupply options. Um, cause as we'll probably talk about later then like the, the route kind of fleshed itself out, but I spent about three years designing what I thought would be the framework for our movement. Fidget, you mentioned that you grew up in the Andes. Did that help you in your planning? I think that I thought that it did. And then I got out there <laughs> and realized that mountains are a lot different to navigate like when you're a little six-year-old girl and you're following your dad up into the mountains is one thing. Um, and then when you're a little 30-year-old girl alone in those mountains is um, a different thing. But one of the reasons that we made it through was because people met us out there and cared for us. And like there, we had... You know, my mom was so worried about me being so far away, but we had like 10,000 moms out there and they would give you directions, but you got to be sure to call them when you get to the next town. And good Lord, you're not leaving this house without a glass jar of jam. Um, so those, those folks really helped us actually along the way. So I think I had an idea that I thought that I knew what I was doing, but it just took getting out there and realizing that I didn't know what I was doing and then being okay with receiving um, direction from others. How much of a uh, established trail were you following? Was there an established trail out there even? It was a mix. Um, I would say, so yeah, this is, this is going to be a bigger, a bigger conversation, right? The, the different trail options, but I would say that it was everything from cross country tracks, just following general directions from the gauchos and the wasos to, um, you know, really new developments and trails like the Greater Patagonia Trail to ancient walkways like the Capacnian, um, to just a lot of bush bashing through Gagne forests. And then you look up and there's like a cow skull hanging from a shrub and you're like, okay, great. There's a trail marker. Or a teapot. A teapot. <laughs> teapot blazing. Yeah. yeah. Cow skull blazing. <laughs> Seriously, you would see a teapot hanging out there? What does that mean? I have a photo of a teapot hanging from a tree branch that looks like it had been there for 20 years. Um, but that means that they were marking their way um, to get there. It's Nian's skill set is that she's very, um, 
she uses her powers of observation a lot. And in a lot of the parts where we were just kind of making our own way, she would notice these small things. Like there would be like a small stick that had been cut at some point (laughs) with a saw. And I would be, we'd be standing on this steep hillside in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, that's it. We're lost. It's over. Like we're going to die here. And she's like, no, there is a sawed twig over there. And then just like walks (laughs) off in that direction. I'm like, well, okay, I guess we're all right. And just like, follow her over there and sure enough like who knows when that wig got (laughs) cut but um we took a lot of hope you know like it's one of those interesting things as a modern explorer that you want to think that you're doing something original when you're truly out there in the middle of nowhere and you see some even just faint sign of previous humanity passing it's a big comfort when you've spent a long stretch without that (laughs) did you two actually ever get lost all the time our first um, team motto was making loss look good since 2015. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Tell us your uh, most harrowing being lost story. So it's not the most harrowing getting lost story, but it was one of the most illuminating getting lost stories. We were in Patagonia somewhere, and this is kind of the way that the trails down there would work, right? So we'd be walking along, and there was this... Um, pretty clear footpath that we're following, probably an animal path of some sort. Um, And we got confident in that. And then we started talking about things other than the trail. And then to be, to be honest, um, we started speaking poorly of a, of a person who was not there. Um, And so we get into this little like volley of speaking ill of a person. And then all of a sudden we look down and there's no trail and we're totally lost and we're in this huge shrub and then that just, that happened several times. And we're like, and I was like, Neon, have you noticed that whenever we start speaking ill of others, we get lost? <laughs> Karma right yeah, there. So Immediate. We had to, we had to, it's really cool how nature will, will, will teach you in those ways. And it's, you only see it if you, when, once you've learned to look for it, but it was repeated and it was, it was enough to get through my thick skull. So then with you following these trails or just looking for ways to find your way around, like if there were traces of human activity, like a skull or a teapot or a sharpened stick, um, was that ever accidentally a case where you were stumbling onto someone else's property? Like, was there ever a time on the trail you were going through private property? Often. Often. Like it's a trademark of the trail, like is private property unavoidable? One of the reasons that we don't make our routes public is actually because many of the routes that we followed were given to us by people based on our having built personal relationship with them. There's this different dichotomy in Latin America than there is in North America. Of If a person shares an information of a route or and if, if a person shares an information of their route with you, they are they then feel responsible for your well-being through that route. And therefore it would is frowned upon if you then just put that information out there for just anyone to use. Um, because a lot of it is is the matter, you know, in Argentina, it's a matter of drinking mate with the right people and spending a couple of days in town and meeting their children and meeting the grandparents and sharing a meal. And then what they're sharing is their heritage with you. The routes that their grandpa has always moved the, moved the cattle over. Um, so 
yeah, it's, um, it's a lot of private property in Chile where they, they developed their, um, land right systems based on some of the U.S.'s systems. Um, so there's a lot of property there. And then in Argentina, there's, it's a lot more, um, public lands, but, uh, the people who live on it have it as their own. And so even though it may not technically be private property, it is this person's livelihood and their property. Um, Bolivia and Peru, it's, it was a lot of indigenous, um, lands and needing to respect cultures that even, I think this is circling back to your question earlier, you know, I thought that I had a grasp on what we were going to. I didn't know that I would be speaking with people who spoke languages other than Spanish a good portion of the time, whose cultural values and rules are so different from the European Spanish that I was exposed to in my upbringing. This was more indigenous, like Aymara and Quechua just fluidly mixed in with Spanish and rules of responsibility and language that is much different than uh, what I thought that we would be encountering. Are either of you fluent in Spanish? I am, and Neon has vastly improved. So you do all the talking, Fidget? Fidget generally <laughs> does all the talking just because of our personalities, <laughs> too. So it doesn't even have to really do with, um, which, I mean, I appreciate because then she can, like, take hold of a conversation in general. And then I can just sit there and, like, observe as I do. Um as she said earlier, like my observation practices, she'll be looking for something and like asking people about it. And I'll just look around and be like, Oh, that says the word that means what we're looking for. Or sometimes it like, again, with our balance of, um, of different characteristics of ourselves, like she, it, it ends up working out like half the time she figures it out first, the other half I figure it out first. Like it just, it works really well. <laughs> So people who might be wanting to travel down in South America, do you think it's important that they know some sort of Spanish or do they have to be fluent or can they get by with traveler Spanish? I think that depends on where you're trying to go. I think if you're going to stay in the tourist areas, you'll be fine with just having Google Translate on your phone or, or a pocketbook. Um, if you're planning on moving outside of those regions, can you? Yes, absolutely. Will it be a positive experience? Um, not as I, it's also just my personal opinion that it's a matter of respect, um, even in, in places. And I think I have the advantage of that was part of my upbringing that, you know, learning that, but for example, in moving through like Aymara and Quechua territory, I tried to learn a couple of words at least in their languages. And even if I couldn't progress in a conversation beyond them. It, it's a demonstration of goodwill and trying to meet you, trying to meet them at their level. And um, there's a big part of it. So how would that be like if you're approaching a homestead um, or you're going to be meeting with someone on their property and like then getting guidance from them of like how to go through the next section? How would you go through that from beginning to end in terms of interacting with the locals so it's a positive experience for you and it allows you to continue on at the same time? Tell the story of the couple in the Magallanes region, Neon. Oh, <laughs> so <laughs> in, um, yeah, I mean, it depends on the region. 
a lot of places it's the person who is approaching's job to reach out to the person whose property it is. Um, we had a very specific <laughs> encounter down when we were first, we, that was probably like our first month, huh? Um, right outside of Punta Arenas, which is one, the furthest South city on mainland, um, mainland Chile. And, um, there was this couple and we were just like walking as we do. We came out of their back 40, um, and just showed up in their backyard, which is tends to be how we show up, um, to these different places. And the dude was just, we had just like come over, we had climbed his cattle gate because we didn't want to let his cows out. Um, and he had just been watching, like standing there and watching. And then he was like headed from the barn to the house. And so we were like walking maybe like 50 feet behind him, but he just like walked to the house and then he just stood in the front yard or I guess backyard. Um, (laughs) he stood in the yard and his dog was with him and we were just like talking about it. We were like, Oh, should we approach? Should we approach? Like, should we ask him? And I was like, well, we need water. Like fidget wasn't feeling really great, but they were only Senos around. So that's, that's like salt water, um, bays. And so we were like, well, we need water. So fidget approached him. And as soon as she was like, Hey, how, how is it going? He was just immediately like, please come in and eat all of my food and let me take your shoes off and, um, put them in my oven to dry out. Cause it is so wet here. Um, yeah, so it's just like this amazing like people talk about ho- Patagonian hospitality and you really don't understand that until you experience it. And then again that that becomes then the the guests obligation to kind of cut when the hospitality has been enough. How do you do that? It takes some work and it takes some learning and observation. And I think this is something I feel like I hope that we can be giving to your listeners as some pointers and how to approach these interactions in a way that is a mutually positive experience. Um, one is, so yeah, like, like Nian told in the story, you, you announce yourself in some way, a way that we learned further on down the road is whistling, um, not only to prevent negative encounters with defensive dogs, but it's also a way that, um, they, they will hear and they'll know to come out, um, I also think like in the U.S. culture and long distance hiking culture, you know, you're all about making those miles. So you're probably just going to blow on past. But in Latin culture, it's extremely rude. If you, it, It's like if you walked through someone's house and then just like out the front do- back door and kept going, um, like you need to greet the person um, making also being willing to make and share some time with them. Um, and what we learned was to watch around their kitchen. Like one time we were with a gaucho who was trying to, um, who was offering us bread, but looking at his very sparse kitchen, we could see that um, that was his only piece of bread that, that he, you know, he had made that for himself for his dinner that night or another time in Peru, there was this man who was coming down from the mountains and he had these two beautiful mountain chicken eggs in his hands. And I was just admiring them. They're so beautiful. And he holds them out and he's just says, here, there you have them. And there I, I had to jet like, first of all, compliment him and, and honor how courteous he was being. And then 
um, maneuver that into um, saying, no, thank you. We, we have what we need because I knew that that was his dinner. That was all that he was going to have. And he was prepared without a word to, to give that. Um, so if it's in a situation and you observe that they have enough, um, certainly accept because just flat refusal is generally considered very rude. There was one family we met in Chile who they, there had been one other explorer, a guy on a bike who had gone by years ago and they were like still talking about, and they're like, he wouldn't eat anything that we offered him. He lived only on water. And we're like, Mm-hmm. but it was very upsetting to them. And it went into their narrative of just like the, these people. Um, another thing that we learned is to carry gifts, um, finances in certain regions, like Nian said, it goes region by region and it's difficult because you have to constantly be feeling it out in certain regions. A monetary gift um, is warm is, is gratefully accepted and others. It's not so much, particularly in Patagonia, it would be a slight to just directly attempt to pay for services. So what we learned is leave some money tucked somewhere that when they wipe down their table later, they're going to find it or bundle it with other gifts. Like we would carry um, juice mixes or um, garlic cloves, or, you know, if you can carry anything fresh out, it's usually to a homesteader, quite a wonderful um, gift, or even just like a knickknack from your own country, like coins or bills or just some sort of memento like that usually um, means a lot. As well as if you are traveling in these more remote regions, you're going to be encountering a lot of older folks and um, an offer of helping with physical labor um, means a great deal to them. And it's also a wonderful relationship building opportunity. Were you surprised and maybe taken aback at the hospitality you received along the way? Or is it something that you expected to happen? I feel like I was pretty taken aback by it. Um, just for people to be so welcoming to strangers is not the norm um, in places, especially being from the East Coast. I'm just like, you're gonna what? <laughs> you, you're gonna like just invite me in and like feed me and then offer me more food and more drink and more like it's just yeah it's pretty unparalleled especially further south like once we got up to to central Chile and Argentina it was more general friendliness but in Patagonia it's really really something special that I hope I hope sticks around you know, some of these homesteads, these villages, were they way out there or just a day's drive away or how far away from civilization were some of these places? Um, a day's horse ride. Um, I think two, three days, three days horse ride. So when you say horse ride, so these people don't have automobiles or anything like that. Everything there aren't is horse roads travel. to their houses. Like, they're out in the middle of nowhere. There are no roads that would get them there. Don Luriel's place was three It was three and a half days horse ride from one town and four days horse ride from the other. There was another gaucho who's, or no, he was a waso. He was very clear about that. Um, What's a waso? Um, it depends on, on what region you're in. Um, some people divide it between Chile and Argentina. Some people divide it between, like, a gaucho is a mountain cowboy and a hueso is like a lowland. Other people are like, well, huesos have wide saddles and flat hats and gauchos have small saddles and um, bed rolls. 
But um, for him, I think it was kind of a nationality identification. But uh, Wessos and Gauchos are, I think if any Gaucho or Wasso listened to podcasts, they'd be offended to hear me say that uh, they're similar. Um, <clears throat> but he was essentially a home out and he was homesteading. And we happened upon him, as we do many, by by almost like a miraculous chance. And he, <laughs> as they're sitting down to dinner at his place that night, he's like, you're my first guests in seven, you're the, in seven months and you're going to be my last. Um, you're the only people that I've seen besides my animal and my farm hand. So overall with these experiences that you had that were so positive, people being so hospitable, you know, in these remote areas, would you say that traveling was safer than you originally thought it would be? Like you felt more safe than you thought you would? I would say it depends on the area again. Like we were, we were very careful to be cautious. Um, like before we would approach somebody, we would have either had them be vetted by somebody else that we had already met. Um, or like know that, or like kind of feel them out basically. Like if our gut told us no and like fidget gut, fidget's gut, um, speaks a little bit quicker than mine <laughs> so we would usually trust hers um and then if both of us were like mm, i don't think so then we'd be we would walk away from the situation we have had a few times where we were like mm, this doesn't feel right we need to we need to get going even if it is like later in the day um, and they would usually respect that we've never had an issue where people have tried to hold us um well in a place Sounds like most of the encounters were mostly positive. Were there any mm -hmm. dicey encounters you had? When you're adventuring internationally and so far outside of your comfort range, your gauge for threat needs to be set at a different level than it does if you're, say, traveling through an area where you know um, cultural norms. And one of the greatest ways or one of the greatest, biggest tools to avoid getting in, uh, to, to deal with a dangerous situation is to avoid the dangerous situation on the front end. And so particularly as women, that meant not giving people the benefit of the doubt sometimes. Um, it's one of the things that we're taught in, in the U.S. And I think it's demonstrative of how far advanced of a civilization that we are, that we can even tell ourselves like, Oh, well you owe this person the benefit of the doubt. Um, it's a, it's a difficult matter to understand, but you just don't take risks that you might otherwise is essentially what I'm trying to say there. So there have been a couple of times along the journey where I, I felt like I was in a comfortable situation. I was in a town where I knew people, um, I was feeling particularly gregarious that day. The sun was out. I don't know that I saw a cute bird and all of a sudden, all of my concerns like went away and um, this like weird old gaucho fellow against a fence is, is talking and I can't quite understand him. And I have learned this just from getting like mugged in Europe and stuff is somebody's mumbling and so you lean in to try to understand what they're saying. That's often actually something that's being done intentionally to draw you into their space. Um, and this particular guy was like 
holding on to me and not letting go and like pulling me in. And culturally, sometimes, sometimes you give a kiss on the cheek and that's an acceptable thing. And um, there's, again, different rules in different regions. But this guy was like pulling me in much closer than I wanted to be and like kissing my face where I didn't want it. And um, it, was, it, it brightened me. Um, and we definitely then hightailed it back to our friend's house. And I got into the yard where the husband was playing with the kids. And then that same old guy like goes walking past and just, you know, in passing to, to the father of the home, I was like, yeah, who's your old man over there? And he goes, he's no old man of mine. And he was a rancher from some very remote estancia out around the other side of the lake. And they were like, yeah, they found a girl's body tied up in his uh, barn and he's not a cool dude. And I was like, oh, neat, neat. Oh. Oh. <laughs> wow. wow. Close call on that one. Well, yeah. And it's just a testament to the fact that it's there. There's Western justice out there. Like, you know, there, there are the, the, border guards and such, but, um, the people, uh, and sign their own rules. And that guy's from an old family and everybody just knows that he's a weirdo and they keep their young women away from him. Um, and, um, they take care of it when he does, when he comes into town, you know? Um, so there, so it's just, yeah, there've been a number of, of situations in a, in a variety of ways that, uh, were sketchy, but again, we were, very well cared for. So did you um discuss like did you have a prepared safety plan ahead of time as part of your planning for the trail like a safety word did you carry like any uh self defense or anything with you? We did our best to be prepared for the different situations at hand. Um Fidget was definitely on top of that with we did have a safety word and if any of us if either of us said it like we'd be out of there no questions asked, even if it was just like a, a different concern. Some, some practical advice that I think um, anyone who would be looking at putting together a journey like this might benefit from is that, yeah, I did quite a bit of work in putting together a safety plan on the front end. And that involved um, having a point of contact in the United States. Shout out to my friend, Matt Miller, who's uh, military personnel who knows and has been abroad in, in sketchy zones. And, um, he does calls with us periodically when we need to, we do this thing where uh, probably about quarterly or whenever it comes up, we, we talk through an emergency situation. We'll spend about half a day to a full day. And whether it's how would we, if we as a team came upon, uh, you know, at first it was wilderness medicine, like how would we approach who would take notes, who would perform CPR? We played that out. That moved into as we were moving through Peru, where there had been some other tourists who'd been attacked by a town. We talked through that situation and contacted knowledgeable parties. As we moved into Colombia, where we knew kidnapping was a situation, we had a sit down phone call with Matt and he talked us through, you know, here's what you do. Here's what words do you need to know in Spanish? Um, what do you do if someone tries to kidnap you in a public place or if you're out in the wilderness? So we navigated all of that. Um but on the front end, some work that pretty much anyone can do to make things easy and helps you realize what it is that you are walking into is put together a Google Drive folder with headshots of us, with physical descriptions of any like physical features that stood out, a list of embassies of the countries that we would be in and their contact phone numbers, 
photocopies of passports so that if something happened, this point of contact, all they would have to do is share that Google Drive folder to the embassy so that they could find us. Um, in my personal preparation, I put together a living will and testament. Um, I We both make sure we have travel insurance that has repatriation coverage so that they'll, you know, if our bodies need to get back to the United States, um, that's not going to be a financial burden on our families is pretty important. And or if we're injured or if, yeah, yeah. Life and limb coverage as well up to about 50, 25 to $50,000 is what I would recommend looking at um, for that kind of coverage. And that helps make it real. Cause I think when you're going for something like this, there's a lot of idealism on the front end and that's wonderful to foster that. And at the same time, you also need to recognize honestly, what it is that you're walking towards. Wow, that's really good advice. Something I never even thought about, all the putting together the embassy information, photos of yourself, things in case people needed to go looking for you. I don't want some embarrassing Facebook picture getting used as my like, have you seen this person? (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Idealistic is good. Idealism of that it's going to go well, that you're going to have great experiences, but also practical too. You know, it's so important to plan for it and know these are things that could happen. So you have you have the safety plan um, that's put together in your Google Drive, but just just the on the ground safety plan. You mentioned you had a safety word um, and how you would use that in case of an emergency. It would signal the other to kind of we got to get out of here right now. What are some of the other things that you would do to to carry with you um, to keep yourself safe? safe or other different rules or, or thoughts that you had agreed upon that you would not put yourself in certain situations? Um, some that I can think of, we were carrying pepper spray. Um, I stopped carrying it after a while and Fidget was not very happy about that. Um, but I forgot it one season. Um, we both had knives on us that were pretty readily accessible. Um, we kept our valuables um, Fidget carried a was it a a tablet most of the time, which was buried in her pack until we were like in a place that was enclosed. She wouldn't flash anything around. We wouldn't flash anything around. Um, if we knew an area was going to be a little bit sketchier, we would hide our valuables deeper in our in our packs. Um, we only kept out, especially through kind of areas that we had read up on and knew were a bit more, um, of the, we could get mugged, um, areas. We would only keep out the money that we needed for that day or that we thought we needed for that day. Um, everything else would be buried in our packs and probably in our like nasty, dirty laundry. (laughs) Um, we kept an eye out when we were in public. Um, we had a rule that we wouldn't hike at night. Um, most of the time we wouldn't go out at night in cities alone. Um, we, we would go out together. Um, but even some, in some cities, we just wouldn't go out at night. We'd make sure to get everything done. Yeah. Because of the, the drinking or at certain times of year, like certain holidays are big drinking holidays for um, different countries, especially Independence Days, Sundays, <laughs> Independence Days. Um, what is it? Holidays like between Christmas and um, New Year's. Everybody has off. 
Um, so we would do our best to avoid situations that could be lead towards um, more dangerous situations, especially like we would read up on different articles. Like there were, t- and it's like, it's sometimes it's scary to think about, but it's also real kind of like how Fidget was talking about. Like you, I feel like it's better to be informed and to make an informed decision than just to pretend that women's bodies don't show up in bags on beaches sometimes. Um, which happened it happened while we were out there there was a number of women being found like cut up in pieces and sunk in bags like at the same time as we're getting messages from folks like oh I wish I was doing what you're doing sounds like a lot of fun have the time of your life and we're like physically ill um, because of where we were and and just getting a lot of news of that which was one of the reasons that one of the many reasons and probably actually one of the more harrowing reasons that we carried our um, garment in reach. Um, we've been really grateful for their support in that and being able to have something sent out every couple minutes and specifically request having someone who we ask to check in on it every so often. And again, it was our safety guy, Matt, and we established if you don't see the tracker moving in the direction of at least generally in the direction of the route that we should be going at 24 hours, reach out. If you haven't heard back by 36 hours, alert these three people who are in the spreadsheet at um, 72 hours, go ahead and just send our information. Um, or I think it was at two days. It was like, try to reach out to us, you know, via WhatsApp or cause sometimes like one piece of technology might've failed It's like reach out to us in all the ways. If you get no response, if you don't see movement, then at three days out, go ahead and share our information um, to the to the embassy. And then once we were in Colombia as well, it was, you know, who would be because down there uh, kidnapping is is an industry. And so you have to like hire someone private and it's kind of a business. So how would we navigate that? And then it's as small of things as like with our partners, um, Hyperlight Mountain Gear, I asked them to put together a pack. Um, you know, we went with packs that were dull colored. Um, we went with packs that the, the outside pockets were completely covered, none of the mesh stuff, because we didn't want people to see what we were carrying around. Um, and a, mine was black, and I could stick it in a um, back corner of wherever we were. And it wasn't as, even though we were extremely visible as white women, um, at least we didn't want all of our gear to be. And they even sewed in like a secret pocket for me because if someone, you know, sees you digging around in your bag, um, they're going to be interested in that. So I had them sew a secret pocket into the back where I could hide like my passport. And I made sure to have like one form of ID on my person, one form of ID on my, um, in my bags, and then something in a separate so that if any piece of my person or my gear got stolen, I would have an ID on another part of my person. I went so far as to try hiding money in my shoe, which was a terrible thing. And I do not recommend that for hikers to do. Cause I was like, I then tried to pay for something and the lady straight up came back with that bill and was like, um, I'm not accepting this. This is disgusting. And I was like, fair, <laughs> fair. <laughs> so with your gear set up, was it like a typical through hiker setup? Or were there like specific pieces um, that were very unique to what you had? I'd say it was generally a through hiker setup with a few additions because we were going to be gone for so long. Like most through hikes don't last 13 months. So we had like, again, most through hikers don't carry a tablet. Um, 
but we wanted to be able to share along the way. So we made some sacrifices in lightweight gear to be able to have the tablets and the, um, I had a, um, Kindle that I would write on. And so we would be able to write and upload photos and, um, do that kind of stuff while we were moving. Um, and the post office system in South America is mostly defunct. So that's not a way to, you can't really have a bounce box. (laughs) Um, you can try, uh, but it's not going to turn out the way that you want. And most of your stuff might get stolen. Um, so yeah, I would say it's basic gear was pretty similar, like sleeping system, cooking system, Um, we were able to find unique ways to get some fuel for our alcohol stoves. What were you using for fuel down there? Did they have denatured alcohol or, you know, heat or anything like that? Like petrol? (laughs) They, I don't know exactly what they called it. I can't remember. Um, but basically a lot of places, especially in like Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, they had, um, just these like gallons of alcohol that was probably a bit stronger than people should Grandpa's drink, but hooch. it was for drinking. It was grandpa's yeah, hooch, and they basically. would drink it until they went blind. <laughs> wow. Literally. It's like yeah. the XXX yeah. it You would just yeah. watch for this plastic jug in the back of the store, and you would just like point at that, and they'd be like, no, dude, you don't want that. Like You're a proper white woman. And then one time we got some, packed out and it didn't light. And so I learned to, um, we would like go in and be like, Hey, can I have a sample of it? And they'd be like, okay. And I would go out, dump it on the ground and light it on fire. And then I look up and like the whole plaza of people are just like staring at us as I walk back in and I'm like, I'll take a leader. And they're like, uh, (laughs) who's this lady? (laughs) Um, wow. That's one of the things about you know, the specialized gear that we've become accustomed to in the, in the U S like what Nian was saying, when you're hiking internationally, we're, we're prioritizing resilience over lightweight or, or over being ultralight, but you do still try to be lightweight because we're walking, you know, five or six days a week for a six month, a 13 month, a nine month stretch. Um, and like she said, the mailing system is not an option in the places where it does work. Um, you're going to get taxed to high heaven on it. Gear shops are few and far between, and they're not getting uh, the quality of gear that we are in the U.S. And all of that said, anywhere that you are, everything that you need to survive is available if you're prepared to adapt your gear to to what the locals are using. So again, with the, the fuel adventure, we in some places we're going to the hardware store and getting paint thinner. In other places, it's grandpa's hooch. Um, in other places, it was rubbing alcohol. But then we got into um, Ecuador where they weren't allowed to have rubbing alcohol that was stronger than 70%. And that doesn't burn above 12,000 feet. Um, so it was um, having an adaptable stove. Like one of our partners is uh, Tokes. And they just have these little cans. And if you if it burns... Um, 
it works. And, you know, like I had tried having, you know, an MSR stove <laughs> the first season, <laughs> that thing went up in a ball of flame early on and I couldn't find any of the specialized parts. And that's when I was like, all right, well, you know, what's going to work a tin can. <laughs> yep. The good old, uh, cat food yeah. can, right? <laughs> Capu can mm-hmm. or Coke can stove. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What about what about water quality and water filtration? Did you guys uh, feel like you had good water, good water sources along the way, or did you wind up getting sick at some point? <laughs> did someone tell you to ask that question? <laughs> um, in terms of water treatment, we've we've run the gamut from not filtering at all to just following the red crosses um, baseline of just uh, two drops of bleach per liter to when we were in Peru and going through a lot of um, farming regions where they use a lot, a lot of chemicals and pesticides and we're gathering water from downhill of towns where there's like literally bubbles from the soap that they're using to wash their laundry and the water that's running out of the pesticide laden fields. Um, I was using a Sawyer S3 to, to try to squeeze uh, water and, um, and also, yes, we got sick. (laughs) Um, We spent almost, almost the entire country of Bolivia uh, taking turns um, getting ill right up until the capital city where we made it, where we ended up just needing to get an, let's put it like this. We had to get an Airbnb and the priority was that it have one toilet for each of us. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. We talk about all these parts, um, and this is all just South America. So how long did it take? Um, how long did it take you both to go from, uh, Tierra del Fuego until around the Panama Canal? Two years of walking to go from Tierra del Fuego, Ushuaia, um, on Tierra del Fuego to Turbo, Colombia. Um, and then we crossed into Panama. And um, I rode my bike, well, a bike, <laughs> from Yavisa, Panama, up to Colón. And Fidget was able to cover that ground in a kayak. Did you split up? Um, one with the kayak, one with the bike. Central America is where Central America is where things got really exciting for us. Um, and I would say that began around our initial um, efforts at crossing the Darien Gap, which from the moment before I set foot on this journey, I knew that the Darien Gap was going to be um, a complicated point. So where's the where's the Darien Gap? Uh, the Darien Gap is is a lowlands area between um, Colombia and Panama. And Panama actually used to be a part of Colombia. That's a whole side story, but people should read about what happened there. It's also um, an indigenous territory, uh, as well as it's a bottleneck for human travel. And despite the fact that thousands of people pour through, they call it La Trucha, um, the footpath slash like inland boats um, that navigate people who are immigrating. Um, The officials in that area were not comfortable with the idea of two white women wandering off into their jungle. And we had, we hired a guide and we had all of the permits and we thought we could pull it off legally because um, four dudes with motorcycles hired basically an entire indigenous tribe to carry their motorcycles through the Darien Gap so that they could get the accolades for it. 
Um, but they paid $20,000 to have the people do that and then turned around and blamed the indigenous people for like stealing one of their motorcycles when they had actually abandoned it because one of them sat down and was crying and they had to like take him out. So because of the most recent experience having been people assuming that they should be carried through and paying exorbitant amounts of money, it set this precedent. And it was a precedent that we financially um, could not live up to. And we are not willing to um, talk ourselves up as much as it sounds like these guys were. And so we were quite deeply disrespected um, in that effort. And at that point of the season, I was really tired and um, I did not handle it well and doors shut to us. So I was sitting in this one town on the border there and I was really sad and frustrated. And there's just this <laughs> guy <laughs> doing this thing that all the dudes in the Caribbean do, Caribbean do where they sit there with their like shirt pulled up over their belly and his hands are just like resting on his belly. And he's like leaning back in this like plastic chair on the porch. And I'm sitting there with my head in my hands on the ground, kind of like near his feet. And he's just like, there's only two ways through here for people like you. And that's either on a plane or on a boat. And even through all of my frustration and rage and sadness at that moment, like whatever that little voice that first heard this calling was, was like, one of those is non-motorized. Um, so because of the need to, to get my head back on, um, we like pulled out for a little bit and um, settled down and, talked with our, the guys at track kayaks and got boats. And we found um, another a bike packer who he um, pack rafted the Gunayala, the, the um, section of the Darien Gap. And we're able to, um, I think his name is Johan, um, Johan, and used his information. And off of that designed a kayaking route that went from Lake Nicaragua back down to Turbo, Colombia, where uh, we had left off the walking. So did you guys split up? I'm still not sure. Did you guys split up then? And, and Fidget, you went kayaking and, and Neon, you went on your bike, correct? They happened at different times. Okay. Um, so that's, I think that just adds to the confusion. So, but we would split up sometimes, like even in South America, you know, you spend so much time with somebody like, we talk about this often where we've spent probably more time than most married couples um, have spent in their lifetimes together. We've spent it in the past four or five years. <laughs> um, so we would, we would find these breaks to actually be, be helpful and useful to kind of just like re reset and kind of re um, think separately um, cause sometimes I know I have trouble when there are all these like outside, outside voices saying things to me, like it's hard for me to concentrate on what's important to me. Um, so even when we were walking through, we started doing this, what our second or third season where we would, if both of us felt comfortable, um, we would walk separately for like a couple of days if we were like, okay, we're in Ecuador now. Like it's pretty um, safe here. We don't, I haven't felt, um, like I was in danger for the past week or two. Um, I need some time to like hike alone and just like, we'd follow the same route. Like we both have route finding, 
equipment on our person. So um, we would be able to follow, follow this almost the same route and then like show up in the next town and re reconvene. Um, and it was just good for, for our psyches just to take a little break. Yeah. So then you've crossed. So then you've had your time, um, with boating and biking. So at this point, are you, you're approaching Costa Rica? We, we crossed Costa Rica. So the, the kayaking, the, the kayaking portion has been that we both kayaked from Lake Nicaragua back down to Panama and at Panama, um, neon returned to the United States and I continued on and I paddled with a gal named Eileen through the Cunayala. I think more, most folks would know in the North would know that it's the San Blas islands, but the, the Cuna are the people. Um, and it's an archipelago of 360 islands and there's an extremely touristy part of it. Um, and then further south of that, it becomes rockier as you approach the, um, the Darien Gap. And so that was where like Eileen and I were camping one morning and just all of a sudden a bunch of military personnel with assault rifles come fading out of the jungle towards us um, and want to see our papers and um, navigating that sort of territory. So that, that paddle of the, the Cunayala of the, of the Panamanian coast back to Colombia was about a month. And then because at that point we had shifted because in South America, the seasons are the opposite in the Southern hemisphere. And then in the Northern hemisphere, all of a sudden it was flipped and it was also a very um, particular snow year in 2019. So I through hiked the continental divide trail southbound while neon bike packed the new wild west route southbound. The wild west route goes from Canada to Mexico um, and it goes through Western Montana down into Idaho, actually right past Park City, right through Park City, um, Idaho, Utah, Arizona. Um, and it's separate from the Arizona Trail because it's more of a um, dirt roads trail route. Um, then, like the, the Arizona Trail can be bike packed as well, but it's single track. So it's, it's the, the wild west route is more of like these dirt roads that you're going, going through the mountains on. And so now this was uh 2019 that you had been doing this stretch continental divide trail, the wild uh, west route. Um, and then at that point, did you continue back into Mexico in 2020? And that's when 2020 hit. Yeah. So when I, when I first had this vision, it was a very clear, it was a single line. It was entirely to be done by foot. It would be uninterrupted and it was going to, the journey was going to just be my life and the people I would connect with would be those that I met. Um, this entire component of sharing it, of, of uh, making it an, an international um, effort of, of putting it on the internet, of making it public, um, came on in other ways. As that happened, I also realized that I'm a person who uh, chafes under too much structure. And I knew that if I set too strict of a vision for myself, I would become unhappy in that. So, and that was where I moved. I allowed myself the wiggle room of um, non-motorized means. 
And then um, we also opted to allow ourselves lateral movement, um, thus not necessarily being one connected line. And, you know, because we've walked past like, you know, through areas that are wiped out by mudslides or have been taken over by mining or volcanoes or um, natural or ice ice fields, um, border issues. Um, We've allowed ourselves lateral movement. So while we both finished at the U.S.-Mexico border, we then moved laterally over to the Baja Divide because it would be my <laughs> it would be my introduction to bikepacking. And I thought the Baja Divide was a great trail to do my first bikepacking adventure on. And in one capacity, that was correct because there is more support of a bikepacking system on the Baja Divide rather than the region where we would have been, where there are significant issues. Um, a, a bunch of people got kidnapped around the time that um, I was finishing the CDT down there. Slash, Slash murdered. murdered. Um, and generally if an area that there's a certain margin, like if an area gets too murdery, um, you just kind of go somewhere else. So we, we went over to the Baja <laughs> divide. <laughs> it's getting a little murdery here. <laughs> I mean, Gotta move on. It's I a little mean, murdery. murdery uh, it's just too humid and murdery. This is so murdery here. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. The Sinaloa cartel was not they very happy during those mm-hmm. times. They were very upset. I've, I have to ask you guys, mm-hmm. as as women, how were you received out there? Did you feel like, you know, did you have some advantages of being a woman? I know that sometimes when I travel in places, my womanly presence is diffusing in some instances. And in some instances, I feel more vulnerable as a woman. I think there were definitely times when it was advantageous, um, especially talking and hearing stories about the men who have been before us. Men have this, like, at least the the men that choose to walk across continents have this very, like, um, what's it called? They want to take it over. They want to, like, conquer. Thank you. Conquer, yeah. Yes. (laughs) They want to conquer it. And we're more like at this within our journey, we're more interested in learning and growing. And so we would come in to these towns or these places and just be curious um, and like reach out to the different people that we might know or might not even know yet and have this curiosity about us. Um, And then that in turn invited the um, other cultures that we were, were traveling through to share their curiosities with us. Um, And so I feel like, and also men, a lot of times the men in villages, especially in like Bolivia and Peru were not there because they were in the cities, they were working in the cities. And so we would come into this small town in the middle of nowhere that didn't even have a road to it. And there would just be women and children. And, um, so we would be, I feel like we would be more welcomed. And then there were times when we heard stories about the specifically like Joey Shanka, who came pretty recently before us and they would still, we, we followed his route for a bit and people would tell stories about this giant man who came through and he was just covered in snow and beards and he He ate raw fish. He he ate raw fish and he just came through and ate everything and then left. 
and we would be more like the, oh, well, what I have questions about your culture too. Like they, there seem to be like, not, a not always, but it's almost like a veil would lift when they would um, be speaking with us versus what we had heard about in the past. Um, and it also welcomed more of the, the young ladies and the kids to feel more comfortable with us um, as well. I feel there were definitely disadvantages as well. I like your point about vulnerability and I feel like vulnerability is both um, very compromising and also one of the greatest gifts um, as it's something to perceive that is perceived and goes innately along with um, our gender is that honestly, as a, as a, in this female body, whether I'm walking around downtown Bozeman or Ushuaia, some part of me is on alert. Um, whether, whether I'm walking to my car in a parking garage after work or whether I'm in a foreign country, like, so because of that, I feel like our, we might be more attuned to our spidey senses, um, in terms of those safety factors. Also the perception of us as women truly, you know, I, I very much believe in, in the movement of empowering women. I also know that there are times when you have to choose your battles. And so, for example, when we fall out of the forest behind a military base and there's just a line of tanks parked there and some military guys running at you really mad that you're there. And then he's just like, and then he sees that you're women and he's like, oh, like you're women. You, you must be lost. And you're just like, oh, si, senor, muy perdida. Like, oh, you, uh, I, I act, I just, I'm so lost. And then all of a sudden it diffuses, like, honestly, just, just playing, letting, letting them exercise those expectations and just going along with it to get yourself out of a situation that could have been made worse is the way to do it. And I can't tell you how many times those conversations begin with them blustering, um, rolling up angrily, telling you what you're doing wrong, how like, and then it ends with them like scrolling through photos on their phone, showing you pictures of their daughter and like, oh, I understand. Like one time at a border crossing, a policeman confiscated Neon's pepper spray because we weren't allowed to have weapons. And then he comes back later on and he's like, here's your pepper spray because you are going into a dangerous situation. And I understand. So um, fostering that shift, uh, working with that framework that exists um, and allowing it gently to shift rather than butting up against it and fighting it, I think has in small ways done more towards moving that line of thinking than um, trying to tear it down necessarily does. Maybe the dangers are where there's more population and the further away you get and the deeper into the remote country, the safer you might feel. Is that true? I think so. Yeah. I know that when I solo hike, um, you know, the most vulnerable I feel is at the trailhead and the, every mile that goes under my feet, the safer I feel. It depends. Cause if you're hiking into an area where there's a forest fire, and you don't have access to information except what hill the smoke is coming from, you don't particularly feel safe. 
But generally, yes, I think I listened to a really interesting interview on all the West with, with champagne and um, Acuna and Acuna. And they were talking about the same thing as black people. They felt safer on the CDT because you're so remote most of the time. And I think if you're in an area where you are familiar with how that kind of nature works, yes, that's true. Um, if you're walking over the edge of a volcano that's um, spouting ashes, not so much. Yeah, Chardonnay and Acuna were talking about that, um, how they both felt their safest on the Continental Divide Trail as compared to like the AT or the PCT, because it was so much more of a remote of an experience for them. I um, have believed this for a while, and it's been um, reinforced, I think, every time I interact with a different person but i feel like people humanity as a whole is like the least predictable of the animals um and like you can predict like we walked past semi-active volcanoes <laughs> um with hot springs next to them and stuff like that and we were like oh my gosh what's happening and then we were like oh it's just kind of going off um it's just like farting clouds of smoke at us okay um you walk past like like, I guess there aren't really tons of bears down there, but um, we saw some cougar prints and we we're like, okay, they're may- maybe watching us, but they're not going to attack us unless like these things happen or unless they're super hungry. Um, so yeah, even like staring down grizzly bears, it's like, this is probably not the best situation to be in, but it's still more predictable than, than the human, the human animal. How did COVID affect everything since you're still in the middle of your travels? So we were continuing our bikepacking on the mainland of Mexico uh, when we began to hear about COVID. And I think that, you know, despite being in very different situations, our process of recognizing and integrating COVID into our lives followed that of most people. Whereas at first it was like, ha ha, what's that? And then I was like, oh, wait, hang on. Um, and then we began having uh, team meetings and discussions about it. And then in our daily check-ins, we began to observe that it was beginning to have a palp, the stress of it was beginning to have a palpable effect on ourselves. Um, and then we stopped in one of the towns and we had a conference with our um, medical advisor, Riff Raff, and our, well, that doesn't make it, he's actually, he's a nurse um, and an international traveler, um, a very advise, advised person. And he was like, he's like, you're going to have to get off the route at some point because of COVID. At the same time, we were getting um, state alerts that the, the borders to like Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador were closed in front of us. So we weren't going to be able to continue on anyway. We talked to our safety advisor, Matt, um, just about some of the, the, the social reaction to it we were seeing on the ground, like people stepping back from us and covering their faces or questioning us about where we had been. And then we had a conversation where we're like, we honestly don't know if we are carrying this. Um, and we are traveling through extremely vulnerable populations. And so how much can we justify prioritizing the fulfillment of our own ego over these people's lives? Um, and so we, we, um, began to acknowledge that fact. And then around the time that neon 
fell off of her bike and slid across two lanes of interstate, um, we realized that it was having all of these underlying effects of stress. Um, we were struggling with patients with each other, patients with ourselves, um, and it was just overall having a negative effect. So we got into Aguascalientes where I have some family and there our phones absolutely began blowing up with the Department of State level four travel advisory, come back to the United States now. Um, we had a hard time finding food because um, places were closed and we were having to do carry out, um, which actually <laughs> that was pretty easy. Um, and I met this wonderful, I wrote about, I wrote a blog about her because I just fell in love with her. And I met this darling old woman who um, was working at one of the cathedrals where we were. And I knew that she was going to show up to volunteer there every day until the day that she died. And there was no way I could feel okay in my own heart if I was the cause of that. Um, and so from there, we decided to, to um, put the mission on hold and came back to the United States. And um, because of the health issues, because of the, the safety issues, because of the social reaction issues, and the fact that just yesterday I got a State Department advisory that Guatemala has put seven of its provinces under siege for the next month because of gang activity and the government coming down on that, and people in Mexico throwing bricks and acid at doctors trying to come home because they're wearing face masks and they're afraid of them um, are all things which it doesn't feel great to not be doing what you feel called to do. But you see stuff like that and you recognize, yeah, <laughs> we made the right call for now. And then what did that mean to come home? Because you've been traveling for all these years. Did you even have a home back in the States? Um, well, we went different places. We both are very lucky to have um, support systems um, in place that we've cultivated over the years of even before we started on this journey of like good, amazingly supportive friends um, and family. And um, so I reached out to a friend because I didn't want to travel very far. Because again, we weren't certain if we were, if we had it, if we like just weren't showing symptoms, because we've been traveling through all these places over from January to the end of March, you know. And um, so I, yeah, I reached out to a friend in San Diego because my car was being stored in San Diego at the time. And I reached out and asked if I could, if he knew. I even, I just asked him if he knew of a place that I could stay in, in the area. And he's like, Oh yeah, I have an extra room. Um, and so I was able to go back to San Diego and just hole up for a couple of weeks. Um, and then from there I went, I have a brother who lives in Sacramento. And so I was able to drive up to my brother's and then had like the space and the comfort of like being supported, by by that family um, my brother and his girlfriend and they were they were great like they were both working from home and so we would go on walks and he had an extra bike that I could borrow to go ride along the bike path and I was there from early April to probably m mid to late May 
And then from there, I started making my way back towards towards Moab, where I have my stuff stored, so that we could then get the plan was to go north into Canada at that point. Um, but yeah, that's obviously not happening. And so um, just trying to figure it out, play by ear. We've spent a lot of time. Um, um, yeah, we've spent a lot of time cultivating these relationships as well as the, the ones in South America. So it's been super, super helpful and grateful for that. As Nian said, it's, it's a challenge being homeless in the time of COVID and we're only able to pull it off because um, we have an incredible social support system in place. The sacrifices that we've made in terms of, of um, security financially has been more than made up for in um, the relationships that we have. For me, what since COVID has looked like is that I went back to a cattle ranch that I worked on in Montana as a youth and helped with the lambing and the calving season up there, thinking that we would be able to proceed on into Canada on the Great Divide Trail uh, this summer. As that is no longer the picture, um, I'm slowly floating my way across Montana, uh, trying to stay in safe areas and and stay safe and and keep a healthy distance um, from folks and honor their boundaries um, as I contend with the fact that, all right, this isn't just a short delay. This is going to require some uh, pivoting of expectations. And so Nian and I actually got together at the point that we had been anticipating crossing into Canada and we went for a backpacking trip in the Bob Marshall wilderness. And, um, it was really cool to remind ourselves what it, why it is that we do what we do, um, and what that ignites in us and what we love. And also to recognize that now it just feels like in every single way possible, everything around us in terms of the virus and in terms of the social conversations afoot is an invitation to be still and to hear and so we're focusing more on the storytelling and community building component of her odyssey. Um, and I actually just yesterday got offered a space. I, w- I would still have to pay for it, but um, a writing residency where I could post up for the next four months and um, work on putting together the, the various notes and the text um, that I've collected from across South America, because it's, it's long been a calling. Yeah. It's long been a calling to, that the, the um, heritage from this will be a book. Um, storytelling is a gift that runs in my family and writing is a particular vein of that, which, which ignites me. Um, and so I'm right now um, exploring how I could financially make that happen in order to hold that space in order to create this text. Um, what is the end goal of the route? So ultimately, our objective is to get to the Arctic Ocean. Initially, we had intended to do that by moving over um, through Alaska, just because my mushing friends are up there and I love Alaska. Um, In a practical sense, we've now recognized that that will add another season on the northern stretch. So the route that I am exploring right now, so we have two pieces left to do. We have to clean up. Uh, the floating chunk left in Central America once things settle down there enough to be safely traversed. That's the lower part of Mexico and Guatemala, Honduras, 
um, back to Nicaragua, assuming they lost their records from the last time we were there. Um, and then up into Canada and our plan there is to hike the great divide trail, which ends just south or yeah, it ends about a hundred kilometers condor kilometers south of where the Arctic drainage begins, um, with the Parsnip river. And we would likely paddle that out uh, to the, I believe it's the Beaufort Sea. Is this two, three years still in the making or two more hiking seasons? What does this look like to you, do you think? Right now, I'm I'm at a place of realizing that, that planning now is not a time for setting parameters for planning. That said, should we be able to resume movement, say, early next year and clean up Central America? We could do that in a matter of months. Um, which would then set us to ideally be able to begin moving into Canada next summer. And I think that we could cross Canada in two Canadian summer seasons. And I think that I just gave away the fact that I actually can't stop myself from planning things, (laughs) having ideas of how I think things should go. Um, But that is what that would be the ideal play out. So that would be two probably two more years. And that's good though. I don't think there's anything wrong with having something to be pushing yourself towards and to have a certain goal for the future. It keeps you motivated. It keeps you trucking along. Well, I just thought I was like, well, like it took Ulysses 10 years to do his odyssey. So I'm going to do mine in half that time. Ha ha ha. And now here we are looking at something more like seven (laughs) years instead of five. So jokes on me. But um, I do. I also believe that, that having, having an aim and having a structure to it is pretty important to balance the a lot because it's it's a balance game right of letting letting the journey define itself um, and to follow where the path leads as well as knowing where it is that you're going to are we leaving anything out I just feel like if you have users who are interested or who are dreaming of grand exploits um get comfortable with, with getting lost. It's, it's not as terrible as it feels the first few times. Like you can get good at being lost and that's a valuable skill. Um, as well as please, when you're on someone else's turf, honor them above honoring your own intent with them um, and just know that that particularly in South America, although I've seen it in Nepal and other places I've traveled as well, it's the humblest people who will give the most. And it's wonderful how that makes your spirit feel. There's also just a very hard reality of they may be giving you their last bit of food and you're probably going to go write an amazing Instagram post about how inspiring that is and get a bunch of like likes but they are going to be hungry that night. So please balance those things in your narrative. It seems like a hard balance to strike, right? Because you also want to be um, respectful and take their gifts. And yet you know that by taking their gifts, you're also going to have a profound impact on what they have to eat that day. And so I bet it took some learning on to you know, find that perfect line. Well, I think that's it. And I don't think there is a perfect line because it changes so much. And I think that's another big part of it is you're going to get it wrong. 
there's been so many times we've walked out of town and I've been kicking myself about like, oh my God, I can't believe that you just took that from that person or how rude was that? And there's a stage of the development of growth in this that's helpful, that, that shame can can cause you to reflect more deeply, but don't stay there. You then move on from that and you use that information gain to do better next time. And next time you're going to probably do it wrong in the opposite direction, but you're going to do it a little bit less wrong. And it's like a pendulum, right? And eventually you'll get to somewhere that um, you are perceptive enough and you are considerate enough and you are equipped um, to be able to meet people at, at this wonderful level of mutual respect and honor and man, that's really where it's at more than, more than the, a physical place. It's for me, it's that, it's that relationship point. That's really um, makes international travel and this kind of hardship worth enduring. Do you think you learned most of it along the way, or did you come there knowing just what to do? I did not come there knowing just what to do. It took a lot of, of scraping, a lot of layers of varnish and like what Nian said, others' expectations off to get to a place where you can be raw enough that you meet people with integrity, but also um, well-constructed and well-versed enough to be supportive to them. So, so thank you again so much for sharing this story with us. We always like to wrap these up by asking a couple of uh, quick, simple questions relating to travel and uh, get your opinions on each of them. So first question, what is the grossest thing each of you has eaten on this trip? Junio. What's that? Uh, junio. It's an Aymara. It's, <laughs> it's these dehydrated, rehydrated, dehydrated rehydrated potatoes that taste like fish dirt. Uh, Don't tell any Aymara people that I said that. They're really proud of it. Okay. <laughs> How about you, Neon? Um, I'm a picky-ish eater, so there are a few things that I can think of, but blood sausage is probably pretty high up there. I tried it once, and I was just like almost puked. It was so nasty. Blood sausage. What is that? It's literally sausage casing filled with blood and like other nasty it's bits black. and pieces of it's black. And then when they heat it up, it's liquid. Um, and then when it cools down, it becomes semi, solid. Again. Semi solid. Yummy. Mm. <laughs> mm. But the dehydrated, rehydrated potatoes <laughs> just became a joke <laughs> at some point for us because we're just like, mmm. So That's, delicious. Sounds like the ultimate bangers and mash meal right there. <laughs> <laughs> Second question. What has been each of your favorite countries and why? I feel like Argentina was one of my more favorite countries because Chileans speak this Spanish that is pretty impossible for even Spanish speakers to understand because <laughs> um, they have different... Um, like nicknames and words for like every every little thing like it's just they all use chilean slang and then you go when that it was the beginning of our trip so we were like going between the countries and every time we got into argentina again i was like oh i do understand spanish <laughs> what was the one thing you didn't expect or were surprised of during this trip 
simultaneously realizing how little power I have and also how powerful I am. And I, those things seem diametrically opposed to me, but I actually found them to be parallel in the journey. But the, the thing that sticks out to me is like, um, I didn't anticipate it would have such a community aspect to it. Um, cause that's just not the way that I've done adventures in the past. Um, and then like being able to learn and grow within that community aspect, I think has been, been super just generally helpful, um, in my development as a human being. And so I didn't expect it to, to be as impactful, um, as it became. Has this trip changed you in any way? Um, in just about every way. Yeah, I would say so. In what way? Well, kind of like at the beginning or earlier when I was talking about our different um, personality types and how we kind of, Fidget and I both like kind of pull each other closer to center with that. It's like I've become more um, interactive in general, um, being able to have like a polite conversation with somebody, whereas I used to just kind of like not really interact with a ton of people. Um, and then just kind of like share, share in the, in the experience instead of like, Oh, I'm out here for adventure. It's like, Oh, now I'm out here for like all these different reasons. And these people get to be part of it too. Um, and so that's, I think that that was the big part that I was just talking about with like the shifts and the changes and adjusting and adapting and being like, I've since working wilderness therapy, I've become good at taking feedback. Um, since coming on this journey, I've been, I've gotten, I feel like I've gotten exponentially better at taking that feedback and like actually analyzing it to see what and how I can improve and in, like what is important to me. I remember at one point Fidget and I were having a discussion as to what our like um, basic principles are in life. And I had like never really had that thought before. I've just like been going through my life based on these like principles that I hadn't even defined um, and so to be able to set that like more intentionality behind, um, life and lifestyle and just like when you're walking, you have a lot of time to think when you're not lost. Um, <laughs> so it's it, like, you just wander along and you're like, Oh, what about this? So it's, it's, yeah, I feel like I've learned and grown a lot. Um, just being able to have that those questions brought up to me or like even being in a different in a different environment that challenges me nearly a hundred percent of the time is very different than being just like hanging out in your comfort zone at home on your like Netflix or whatever. Um, you have to go out and experience it to, to fully appreciate. And I think challenge your challenging yourself is something that a lot of humans don't really do anymore. Um, so I think that's why us outdoors people really enjoy what we call is the, like the challenge of it all. And it's like, what does it boil down to? Like, what are you challenging? And we're so humbled by the challenge that you two have been through. 
the way you have challenged yourselves over these last five years. It's incredible to hear about. And we're just so happy that you shared this story with us. Thank you. Will you ask us about the luxury item question? (laughs) Oh my God, yes. Mario, I asked too. You got to ask this last one. What was the one luxury item that you've been dragging around for the past five years? A bag of rocks. (laughs) What? (laughs) But why? (laughs) Bag of rocks. Uh, Why? There's a strong narrative of the women in my family. And before I left, I kind of accidentally, but then intentionally had gathered like a small talisman of like my sister, my mother, my grandmothers who have passed. Um, And then another friend gave me a, a crystal. And then when we started the trip, down at the channel, I walked down to the water or we actually walked the first probably 20 kilometers or along the coast. And I found this, this perfect little skipping rock. I love skipping stones and it was a really pretty one. And it was like me, it was, it had good edges, but there's some chips out of it. And, um, and I'm not, I just wanted to come along. And, um, I realized particularly when walking to, ki- when talking to kids, and trying to explain like what we're doing, like when you do try to explain the bigger picture, they'd be like, well, why, why, why? And finally I could just be like, well, because I need to carry this rock from the Southern point of the Americas to the Northern point. And then they're like, oh yeah. Okay. Um, and so I like to, to hold that rock and I, and I rub that rock and, um, and then somewhere around Peru and Oyente Tambo, I was in one of the side streets and I got to talking to this grandmother and she had this table of these this certain kind of rock that the the um incan people had used for construction and there but she had a bunch of really small ones and i had picked up this one small one and it's just it's a very hard kind of rock and very smooth and this deep like ebony black and i just liked it i don't know and she looks at me and she goes well you need its mate and they have this very dualistic sense of of um masculine and feminine balancing one another. And she goes, she like takes that rock back from me and holds it in one hand and flicks through the rest of the rocks and then like finds it's, it's mate. She's like, if you want to take this rock, you've got to take this one. And I was like, Oh, I, I don't, I'm a backpacker. I don't carry rocks. Um, and I definitely am not going to carry two rocks. And she's like, no, you're not buying these. And she just like puts them in my hands and wraps her hands around mine. And it was one of those many moments along the journey where I was being blessed. Um, and so then two more rocks <laughs> came into my little bag. And whenever I feel like I'm, I'm uncertain or I'm losing sight or um, I just get out my little rock arrangement and um, I taught my little pieces of, of the women who've guided me thus far and, um, they remind me why I'm out there. Neon, I expect an even greater luxury item. Uh, I too have a bag of rocks. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that I forgot about until just now. <laughs> but one of them is also a crystal. A few a few different friends gave me rocks before I left. Um, there's the crystal. Um, a friend, actually, I lost it on Tierra del Fuego, but she made this beautiful necklace for me of tiger's eye, which is supposed to be um, helpful for safe travels. 
um, if you don't know much about like rocks in general, but like sometimes different, different rocks will mean different things within, within the realm of it. And so tiger's eye, and then it had turquoise on it because turquoise is similar, but you're not supposed to buy your own turquoise. You're supposed to give it, give it as a gift or receive it as a gift. Um, and then it also had some, um, little, I forget what they're called, but it's like the, um, within the desert realm and within specifically within the wilderness therapy realm, there are these little, um, seeds that, um, the animals will eat and then they like leave them the husks of the seeds behind and um so you can make necklaces out of these seeds by like poking a needle through the hole um that the animal has made and then creating another hole um that you you make with the needle and so that was that was pretty powerful and then i had another tiger's eye and i had a um i have a deck of um medicine cards which is like animal medicine um, that the indigenous tribes of at least the U.S. used to believe in, well, still probably do, in the totem animals. And every person has, like, animals that call to them at different times, and they they help for different um, different reasons. And so they all have different meanings behind them. Um, and so I had a blank card that was, like, an animal medicine card, um, just depending on which animal needed to be called on upon at that time um i know across central argentina fidget decided that owls were my my animal because they just kept showing up like literally popping out of the ground (laughs) they would definitely come talk to me and then i don't know what it's been further north i need to pay more attention well, I think we've had a lot of different luxury items, you know, the chair, the pillow. This is the first time we've had bags of rocks. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's the first. That's definitely I didn't know that about the turquoise, which is neat because I just remembered at the end of the CDT in the last town I went into, this old local guy, we ended up having this like three hour conversation. And at the end, he gave me a piece of turquoise. The last thing I forgot to ask before we wrap this up. How did you get your trail names? We never asked that. Neon didn't like the first couple of trail names that people tried to give her. But then she settled on Neon because she traveled with neon duct tape wrapped around one of her trekking poles. And um, Fidget actually met our medical advisor and he gave her the trail name of Fidget when she was getting ready the night before as she is a night person. Um, she was getting ready at the man's house in, um, San Diego to do the PCT. And, um, she was just like, well, everybody should know exactly what's in their backpack, um, and where. And so she was just like messing around with her backpack and unpacking stuff and repacking stuff and unpacking stuff and repacking stuff. And, um, the uh, riffraff was like, man, you should just be called fidget. Um, cause she was just fidgeting around with everything cause she was so excited and like wanted to make sure she was perfectly ready. Well, Neon Fidget, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing our story with us. And I mean, above anything else, we all wish you best of luck with everything. I mean, 
I just hope COVID's over soon, if anything, so that you two can get yourselves to Alaska and get this amazing trip completely wrapped up. Thank you so much. Thank you. A huge thanks to Fidget and Neon for coming on the show. And we wish them, of course, the best of luck when they continue on their way north. Now, you can follow their journey on Instagram, YouTube, or on their blog. Just look up Her Odyssey in order to find them. You can also support them on Patreon. We'll include links to their Patreon and their channels in our show notes on the Gaia GPS blog. So make sure to check that out when you have a second. Next week, we're talking with National Park Guidebook author Scott Turner. He's written Hike the Parks Guides for Zion, Bryce, Sequoia, Kings Canyon, and Joshua Tree. And his next book, due out in 2021, will highlight the big one, Yosemite. Scott's going to give us some tips on how to make the most out of a one-day visit to any national park. He also spills his secrets to avoid park crowds and what to carry in your pack on a day hike. If you love national parks or day hiking, or both, then do yourself a favor and make sure to check out our show next week. In the meantime, if you liked today's show or any of our past ones, please make sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews really keep us going and make my day a little bit brighter, and they also signal to us what sort of stories you want to hear. And while you're at it, don't forget to subscribe to our show, too. Finally, don't forget to snag that great deal on Gaia GPS that we talked about at the start of the episode. Go to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast, that's G-A-I-A GPS.com slash podcast, to get up to 50% off on a premium membership. Until next time... I'm your host, Shanti. Have a great week, everyone. Mm-hmm.